what a blessing it is to get to worship you, to get to hear your word read and prayed and to sing songs to you together as a church. We know that we're so unworthy of a right relationship with you, so unworthy of getting to be a part of your family, that instead we deserve to be cast outside into the darkness, that we deserve your judgment and your wrath forever. But instead of that, Father, you have brought us in, and you have made us your own, and you have poured out your love and your grace upon us. And now we ask that you would speak to us during this time through your word, that you would cause the ninth commandment to have the impact on us that it should, that you would cause us to see you as the God of truth that you are, and that you would convict us for being liars in more ways than we can possibly begin to imagine. We confess to you right now, Lord, our lying, and confess that we have not even begun to scratch the surface of the depth and magnitude of the detestableness of this sin. We ask that you would forgive us for not recognizing how abominable it truly is to you, and ask that during this time you would cause us to see the sin of lying as utterly sinful. And more than that, Father, we ask that you would cause us to genuinely repent and to become truthful people through Christ. We ask that you would do that individually and that you would do that for us as a church, that you would make us truthful people, people that are worthy to be called children of you, the God of truth. Only you can do that by your spirit during this time. So please proclaim your word effectively from Exodus 20, verse 16 and give us all attentive hearts and hearts that are softened by your spirit to respond rightly to your word and to be malleable to what you say and to be rightly convicted and changed. Do this for your own glory and do it all also out of your love for us. And we also know, Father, that it is best for all of those around us for us to be truthful people. And most of all, Father, for your glory and namesake that you would be reflected in us, being the God of truth that you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles and they're not already open to Exodus 20, please turn there. And please forgive me for my voice too. I have come down with what I suppose is laryngitis and on Friday night and yesterday more or less lost my voice. So thankfully it's, it's started to return this morning, um, but it kind of has one foot in the door and one foot out. So Hopefully it'll stay in there. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit softer and a little bit more mellow today uh, than perhaps we're normally used to, um, but please don't mistake that for a lack of enthusiasm or unction, um, and by God's grace, Dave will have the volume turned up enough so that you can still hear it and, and pay attention and be changed by God's word. Is lying a problem for us? By age four, 90% of children have grasped the concept of lying. One survey of almost 3 million job applicants showed that nearly 50% of American resumes contain one or more falsehoods. Apparently, I couldn't find the original for this study, but 20th Century Fox ran a poll for their Lie to Me series, and they found that on average, men lie six times a day to their partners, boss, and work colleagues, amounting to 2,184 lies a year, or 126,672 lies a lifetime. Women told three lies a day, totaling 1,092 a year. 
and 68,706 during their lifetime, with the phrase, nothing's wrong, I'm fine, being the most common fib that people, both genders, say. And according to a study done by the University of Massachusetts back in 2002, 60% of adults can't have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. Since God is truth, his children must be truthful. And that's the main idea for you today. Since God is truth, his children must be truthful. And my prayer for you is that in hearing God speak through the ninth commandment, he would compel you to never lie again. That for men, that 126,672 a lifetime would go down to zero for you henceforth. And I hope to do that by showing you the utter sinfulness of lying and how you can have a truthful heart in Christ, how you can truly become a truthful person. So three points that I look to use to accomplish this. The truth about lies, what is lying and why do we struggle with it? The truth about the truth, why must we tell the truth? And the truth about you, how can you become a truthful person? Truth about lies, truth about truth, and truth about you. Starting with point one, Exodus 20, 16, please read it with me. <clears throat> you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, if you'll notice the ninth commandment, we usually refer to as the lying commandment, but the word lying actually isn't used there at all. It's, uh, it actually specifically says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And the Hebrew term there is referring to, as you might understand from the English, it's referring to words spoken in court. It's commanding specifically that we're honest in testimonies that we give in a legal setting, that our testimonies must be true. Now, to even talk about something being true, a testimony in court, or anything for that matter, is a controversial sub subject in the world that we live today. If you ask yourself what is truth in the postmodern world in which we live, you're gonna get all kinds of different answers, and most of them are gonna say that truth is something that's subjectively based. I was shocked when I read this, but apparently less than half of Christian young people believe that objective truth exists. There's lots of different ways to define truth. Some people say that truth is, is pragmatic, that truth is what works. Some people say that truth is something that's, that's logically coherent. As Christians, we believe in what's called the correspondence view of truth, that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Or put most simply, truth is what is. And thus lies, falsehood, is what is not. And so when the Bible says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, it's saying that our witness, our testimony, must be in accordance with reality. It must correspond to what is. And this is absolutely essential, not only, not only to the integrity of a legal system, especially then, but also essential to the integrity of a society. Now, the ancient legal system was not, not like it is today. It was extremely dependent on the testimony of witnesses that were involved in a particular case. There was very little protection for someone who was accused in an ancient court. And unlike today where you're innocent until proven guilty, many courts back then held you guilty until you were proven innocent. There were a few standards for evidence. 
Sometimes the accused didn't have the chance to defend themselves, and most ancient courts could convict you on the basis of a single witness. Now, they didn't have many of the forensic methods that we have today for getting to the truth, even without the use of physical testimonies. They heavily depended on witnesses, and as a result, their legal system was, was, uh, was uh, liable to much abuse. And so when God stated the ninth commandment, he was very wise in phrasing it the way he did, especially in light of the fact that many of the commands and laws both in Israel and in other nations at the time were capitally punishable crimes. A false witness, a lie in that setting could literally be deadly. Now we get this even today, maybe not in as extreme of a sense, but false witnesses and false testimonies, lies can have serious ramifications on people's lives. In, uh, in, back in 2018, a story came out in the Seattle Times about a false accusation made against a police officer for rape and assault. I'll read to you from the article. It says, an Issaquah woman who believed her accused Bellevue police chief Steve Milet of sexual assault early this year now faces several criminal charges for allegedly making up her claims against the chief and another officer. Edun Schneider, the person who was accusing the officers, age 45, was charged Tuesday with two counts, each of malicious prosecution and tampering with physical evidence, according to charging papers filed by King County Senior Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Gary Ernstorf. The charges stem from Schneider's allegations against both Milet and former Bellevue officer John Kivlin, whom she accused of domestic assault and related crimes. Listen to the impact that this had on one of the officer's lives. Because of Schneider's false claims, Kivlin spent three different stints in jail, totaling 49 days, and Cohen, Kivlin's lawyer, said he also split from his wife, resigned from his job, and was forced to sell his house, the attorney said. The toll has just been devastating. Even in our legal system, where there's so many more checks and balances than there appears to have been in ancient courts, we still get the impact that a false witness can have on somebody's lives. Imagine what it was like back then. Now God in his incredible providence and grace towards Israel, the judicial system was different for them. They had to appear before a jury of elders when somebody was accused of a crime and more than one witness was required, especially if it was a capitally punishable crime. The witnesses were required to tell the truth in line with the ninth commandment and if a witness provided a false testimony, then the witness would suffer the punishment that they were accusing the other person of. Listen from Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. This is how God instituted the legal process in Israel. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judge who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, 
tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The ninth commandment is specifically speaking against false testimonies in court. That said, like all of the other commandments that we've looked at so far, God gave these laws as a paradigm for how we're supposed to live and relate in all areas of life. And so even though the specific understanding of you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor applies to courts and legal settings, it does not just apply to that. Similar to the command against stealing that we looked at last week, the non-specificity of that command makes it clear that it's intended to apply to all kinds of stealing. Stealing property, stealing ideas, stealing reputation. In the same way, the non-specificity of this command seems to be indicative of the same kind of general application. It says you shall not bear false witness, but it doesn't say don't bear false witness only if you're called to be a witness in the case. It would apply to the victims or the accused. It would also apply to the judges and the priests at the time. It doesn't apply only if you're innocent. It doesn't apply only if you're guilty. It applies regardless of the charge, regardless of the result. All of those other, all of those other factors are not relevant to the application of this command. And oftentimes, just the same way that the Ten Commandments will forbid the most extreme form of a sin, they also, as a result, forbid all other forms of sin that fall within that category. And so when we read the ninth commandment, we understand that it's not just talking about legal testimonies in court, but it is forbidding all forms of falsehood and lying, period. Notice it says, you, not shall, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Neighbor has a number of different meanings in the Old Testament. In this case, it's really talking about anybody that you have a relationship with. And that's expanded by Christ in Luke chapter 10, when he makes it clear that everybody is our neighbor. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 78 asks, quote, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? The answer, quote, the ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial or detrimental to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. It prohibits anything that is detrimental to the truth. Anything. That includes big lies, like you taking credit for an idea that you didn't come up with. That includes little lies or fibs, like you telling your boss you forgot about something when you didn't really forget about it, you just didn't want to do it. That includes flattery, telling somebody that they're good at singing when they're not to make them happy with you. That includes slander, telling someone behind your back talking about someone else so she struggles with shopping too much or she doesn't read her Bible consistently. That includes gossip. If I come to you and say, hey, did you know this about Brandon? That falls under the category of the ninth commandment. If someone comes to you with a gossiping word, don't listen to them. It includes exaggerations. To say, I'm always on time, or you never listen, or this is the worst, or that was a huge win. All forms of falsehood. It includes dishonesty. Making it look like you did something that you actually didn't do. It includes speaking even truth in a malicious way or a hurtful way. To tell somebody perhaps that you're so prideful may in fact be true, but it might not be a proper way to use the truth. It also includes partial truths. To say something like, you're too busy to come to church or to come on Wednesday night. 
when in reality what you're too busy doing is uh, relaxing at home or watching Netflix. It includes deceit, appearing to be something you're not. It includes hypocrisy, talking the talk without walking the walk. It includes believing false things in your mind, possibly false teachings about scripture or about other areas of reality. And it also includes having a false perception of yourself, thinking that you're better than you really are. And finally, it includes evil suspicion, thinking wrong things about people without having good reasons to do so, not hoping all things in other people. We break this commandment all the time in more ways than we can possibly begin to imagine. Why do you lie? There's probably a lot of different reasons why. They all come back to us in the hearts being liars. But psychologist Paul Ekman, he interviewed a number of different children and he got questionnaires from adults and he gives several reasons that I want to summarize for you here. These resonated with me. We lie to avoid punishment. We lie to obtain a reward that's not otherwise easily attainable. We lie perhaps to protect ourselves or to protect someone else. We lie to win the admiration of others, to get out of an awkward social situation, to avoid embarrassment, to maintain privacy without making it clear that's what, that's what we're doing. And sometimes we lie to exercise power over others by controlling the information they have. A number of different things will tempt us to break this commandment. And this is something that we're tempted to do on a day-to-day basis, to speak falsehood. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we don't lie to ourselves, we'll recognize that this is something that we've done countless times that in fact we are liars in God's eyes. How do we come to be this way? Jesus says something interesting when he's speaking to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter eight. Listen to what he says in verse 44. He said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is called in scripture the father of lies. He's the original source of falsehood and lying in this world. He's the first liar. Somehow he deceived himself in heaven and many of the angels along with him. And when he came to earth, he deceived us as well. The first recorded lie ever told to man we have in the garden in Genesis chapter three. Listen to what Satan says to Adam and Eve. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we know from the previous verses that that was a blatant and outright lie that God had explicitly told Adam and Eve that you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that one tree and the moment you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan comes and he contradicts what God says and he deceives Adam and Eve. And in that moment, they trusted the lie rather than the truth and they surely did die spiritually. In fact, you could say that underneath every single sin there is a lie of some kind. And Pastor Kurt talked on this last week. He talked about the lies that we believe when we steal about God and about others and about ourselves. And the same is true of the Sabbath. And the same is true of idolatry. 
When we commit those things, we're believing the lie that something else belongs higher than God. When we break the Sabbath, we're believing the lie that that the Sabbath day isn't worth keeping holy, that there's other things that might be better to do instead. Even when we lie, we're believing lies about lying, that somehow, somehow speaking falsehood in this moment is more preferential to honoring God and being truthful. When we turn from the truth and trusted in the lie, our character became like Satan's himself. We became liars ourselves. Sometimes people tell me that, when they look at my daughter Abby, they tell me that, that she looks like me. And in some ways, I take that as a compliment because she's a beautiful little girl. And I also feel bad for her that she has some of my features. But for what it's worth, they see her and they see similar characters to me and, and they see my imprint on her in the same way we, we act and we walk like our old father, the devil, when we lie. That's his character. That's his features. That's what his face looks like. And when we lie in any way, shape, or form, we're pulling something out of the devil's own wheelhouse. And we're looking like a child of his rather than a child of God. He loves it when we do that. It glorifies him. It reflects him anytime we break the ninth commandment. So we've looked briefly at what lying is and what some of the reasons are we do it. What I want to ask you about next and by your grace think about together is what it is exactly that makes lying sinful. Why must we tell the truth? Point number two, the truth about the truth. Listen again from Exodus 20:16. God says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now the ninth commandment, like all of the other commandments, is given to us because it's based off of God's character in nature. Everything that's right is right because that's the way God is. And everything that's wrong or sinful is wrong because that's the way that God is not. And so when we look at the law, we can see the law as a reflection of God's own character and nature. We're given the command not to make an idol because God is invisible. We're given the command not to murder because God is life. We're given the command to keep the Sabbath day holy because God rested on the seventh day. We're given the command not to commit adultery because of the exclusive love he has within himself and the Trinity and with the church. But what is it about God that makes lying wrong? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lying is wrong because God is truth. And I want you to think about that for a second. And I hope that you had a chance to already. I sent that out as one of the questions in the service outline yesterday. What does it mean that God is truth? What does that mean? Does it just mean that he's honest? Does it just mean that he's faithful and that he speaks the truth? Certainly doesn't mean anything less than that. Numbers 23, 19 says, quote, God is not man that he shall lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Yes, of course, God will never speak something untrue, but he's not just truthful. The Bible says that he actually is truth. Jesus himself claims that he is the truth. Now I can tell you one thing it does not mean. It does not mean that all truth is God. It is true that I'm wearing a blue suit right now, but that's not God. And it's true that my wife makes delicious chocolate pie, but that's also not God. 
However, what you can say is that all truth is because of God, that God is the fountain of truth. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Truth War, and there was a helpful excerpt adapted from that book uh, available online, and I'm going to draw directly from that and some indirectly. But he writes, quote, Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. He says even more to the point, truth is the self-expression of God. Reality is what it is because God declared it so and made it so. Therefore, God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. He is the absolute and self-existent definer of all reality, of all truth. Remember, truth is what is. His very name is the I am. He's the original truth, the self-existent truth, the truth upon all other truth depends and originates from. Everything that's true is true because God made it that way. And he made it that way because of who he is. Why is there gravity? Why did mankind invent cars? How come you have five fingers instead of four? How come chocolate's good but spinach isn't? For most people, I should say. How come the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around? Why is murder sin? Why is love virtue? This is the way things are, but it's the way things are because of the way God is. All truth, all reality, the way things are, is that way because God made it that way, and he made it that way because of who he is. Thus you can say all reality is a result of his reality. And I agree with MacArthur. Truth is the self-expression of God. He's the essence of truth. What God is determines all of reality. Now I love it too. MacArthur also talked about what a profound claim it is that Jesus makes here in John, uh, in John chapter, I believe it's chapter four. Uh, sorry, John chapter 14. When he claims to be the truth, it's a claim to his own deity. He's saying that he is truth incarnate, that he's the perfect self-expression of God, that a truth is the expression of God, that Jesus is the most perfect, pure expression of God possible. He's the I am in the flesh, and this is the miracle that we celebrate at Christmas time. This is what we had a chance to sing about in the hymns earlier in the service. We celebrate the fountain of truth, the determiner of all reality, the perfect reflection of God who's the essence of truth, becoming a human being, incarnating himself into human flesh, taking on the body of a man. Miraculous isn't a strong enough word for that. Furthermore, not only did Jesus say that he himself is the truth, but he also said that the scriptures that the word of God you hold in your hand is truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Quoting different parts from MacArthur again, this is so good. He says, quote, it, referring to the written word of God, does not merely contain nuggets of truth. It is pure, unchangeable, and inviolable truth that according to Jesus, quote, cannot be broken, John 10, 35. And also where he says there cannot be any discord or difference of opinion between the written word of God, scripture, and the incarnate word of God, Jesus. And finally, both perfectly embody the essence of what truth is. 
not this week, but next week, we'll likely be talking about the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture in our systematic theology class. And that comes back to this fundamental point, that God is himself truth and perfectly truthful. And since the Bible is a self-expression of God, just as Jesus was a self-expression of God in the flesh, so the Bible is an expression of God on pages. It is without error in all its parts, perfectly pure. So truth, or what is, is the self-expression of God. He's the essence of truth, not just truthful, but truth himself. So Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Why the ninth commandment? Because God is truth. Lying is not only contrary to what he does, but it's contrary to who he is. That's why it's so sinful. As with the other commands, there's a positive side to this. It doesn't just prohibit lying, but he actually commands and requires that we tell the truth at all times. Question number 77 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. Not only must we not tell lies, but we must also speak the truth, again, because God is truth. Leviticus chapter five, verse one, builds on this command. It says, if anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, if you have the opportunity to speak the truth and you don't do it, that's a sin as well. That's just another form of lying. That's another form of perpetuating falsehood, which is completely contrary to the character and nature of most glorious, good, and perfect God. That means if you hear someone speaking falsely about a matter or perhaps another person, or you have a friend or a family member that's about to make a bad decision based on false information, and you do not speak up to prevent their harm, you're in sin and you're lying to them. It also means that if you have the opportunity to share something good with somebody, to inform them and to bless them with truth, and you withhold that and don't do it, you're breaking the ninth commandment. Withholding truth is lying, and it is prohibited by God. In thinking about this, it's sad to say, but I think one of the most common ways we do this is in evangelism, is it not? How many opportunities have you had to share the gospel with somebody, and you know you felt the tug on your heart that you should open your mouth and tell them what you know to be true, but you haven't done it. There's a very convicting passage in Ezekiel chapter three where God speaks to the prophet. And he says in verse 18, quote, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that the wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. In other words, if God tells somebody you're on the road to damnation and you know that and you don't tell them, yes, they will die for their sin, but their blood will also be on your hands. You are a false witness that participated in their death. There was a sad example of this. This past week we had, as part of our national school project ministry at the campus on Lehigh School, we had a number of different speakers come in and they had 
students gathered into the gym and they were there to, to share the gospel. And on the Wednesday session, the one that I attended to, the full gospel was not presented. They talked about sin and they talked about the importance of confessing that and recognizing Jesus of the Lord. They did not talk about Christ's life or his death on the cross or his resurrection or about God's justice or about what happens if you don't repent and believe. They preached a partial gospel, if you can even call it that. And that would fall into the category of the ninth commandment, bearing false witness, lying in the sad case of evangelism, participating and facilitating the perpetuation of falsehood which will eventually lead to damnation and destruction. The ninth commandment requires that we be truthful in all ways, at all times, as God himself is. If God is truth, his people will be marked by truth. Now, is it always wrong to deceive? No, it's not always wrong to deceive. There are cases in Scripture where God not only seems to commend but to bless deception. If you recall back in Exodus 1 with the Hebrew midwives Pua and Shipra, remember Pharaoh gives the awful command to murder all of the children, all of the boys in the land. But Pua and Shifra take, they give birth to the children, but they then save their lives. And, the, and Pharaoh catches wind of this. He calls them in, verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now perhaps there is some truth to that, perhaps not. But then the idea is that they're deceiving Pharaoh there and it was an acceptable circumstance to do so. Similarly, we have Rahab with the Israelite spies in the land of Canaan when Joshua sends out spies to look at the land, particularly Jericho. And they come into the city and Rahab the prostitute hides the men and they come to the door. In verse four, we read in Joshua two, but the women, woman had taken the two men and hid them and she said to the soldiers that came, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. She lied to the men that came to the door. She deceived them, but the result was great reward for her. When Jericho collapsed, her life was spared. What was different in these situations from when you or I lie? Well, for one, it was in situations of warfare and persecution, which most of us, if not all of us, are not currently in. And their lives were motivated by love to prevent worse sins, to prevent great atrocities. And thus it may be acceptable to deceive in certain circumstances. However, that is not what most of our lying is like. Most of our lying, in fact, I would hazard to say perhaps all of our lying is hateful and offensive to God and to others. And even in those cases of warfare and prosecution, I think you can still say that deceit, because God is truth and because God is truthful, even if it's acceptable in circumstances like that, it is still a means that is fundamentally contrary to God and the way that he is. Regardless, the lying we do is strictly and fiercely prohibited and detested by God. It's offensive to God because when we lie, we're treating the truth as something that's worthless. We're preferring our reward or our safety, or our praise over being like he is. 
Instead of delighting in the truth like he delights in the truth, we delight in the falsehood and we choose the falsehood and the lie instead. God cares so much about the truth because he is truth. Psalm 51 verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. It's hateful to God, but it's also hateful to others. When you lie to someone else, you're saying to them that they're not worthy of the truth. You make them believe a lie. You're causing them to believe something that's false. And sometimes this can be harmful to them. Proverbs 25, verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or sharp arrow. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Lying is hateful to others. Hateful to others. And it's also hateful to yourself. God created you to be an image of the truth. When you lie, you're acting like an image of the devil rather than an image of God. And so it brings shame and disgrace upon you. Proverbs 13, 5, the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. It's so evil. God hates it. It's hateful to him. It's hateful to others. It's hateful to you. And it's so contrary to the way that he is. What will the God of truth do with wicked liars? To those who break his command in Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Proverbs 19, 9 says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. You heard Dylan read for the passage of the offering today. In the New Testament, God demonstrates his fierce love and commitment to the truth and how seriously he takes truth by literally killing Ananias and Sapphira for lying to him and acting deceitfully in the offering that they brought. Lying is so dangerous. Acts 5, the church was selling properties to bring it as an offering to God. Ananias and Sapphira sold their house too, a very generous offering that they were to bring before God, but instead of bringing it all, they withheld some, which perhaps may not have been a bad thing to do. It might have been perfectly acceptable for them to only give a portion of it, but they gave the impression that they were going to give everything to God. They acted under that guise, and they intended to deceive, apparently not only the apostles, but lying to God himself. Verse three, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of Israel? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And three hours later, the exact same thing happened with his wife, Sapphira. One commentator posed this hypothetical and it was very effective for me. Can you imagine what it would be like if that were to happen today? If here I am with you, I'm here worshiping with you every Sunday, prayer furnace, fellowship lunch, we're singing, we're praying, 
for preaching. I'm here for Sunday seminars. You know my wife, Sarah. My family's here, grandparents, parents. We're here on Wednesday nights. We're part of the Bible studies. And then one Sunday, Kirk comes to church and he lies about how much he puts in the offering basket. And bam, right there, I'm struck dead. Lying on the floor, dead. And that week, you're having my funeral. That's exactly what happened to the church back then. And God is not less a God of truth now than he was then. He takes truth just as much, he takes truth just as seriously now as he did in the New Testament church, as he did when he gave the ninth commandment, as he did back in the garden when he instituted a world that was to relate to him in accordance with truth. Fear was the right response for the church to have to Ananias and Sapphira's death. This suddenness and quickness with which God put them to death for lying should strike fear into our hearts as well. God is still a God of truth today. Now the earthly punishment that they received for their lying is not fair for a crime against God. And the Bible makes it clear that lying does not just deserve physical death, but that the punishment is an eternal death. It's an infinite punishment because we're lying against a God of infinite truth. Revelation 21.8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, and all liars, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the penalty for lying. That's what the God of truth does with wicked liars. I hope if you're listening to this, you're seeing why we must be truthful. That because God is a God of truth, we must be people of truth. And by his grace, you're seeing the danger of not living in accordance with the truth. And so the final question I want to leave you with today is how we can be truthful people. Last point, the truth about you. It starts first with repentance. It starts with recognizing the fact that we have all lied and that we are all liars and turning away from that with all of our heart. I don't want you to just hear this sermon and not have the right impact on you. I want to take a moment to do this right now. While you're sitting here and listening to me, please take a second to think about the biggest lie that you've ever told in your life. What is the worst lie that you've ever told? I want you to imagine it. I want you to picture it. And then see God as the God of truth who loves truth and is so glorious and good and worth being like. And be grieved over that lie. Be rightly ashamed of it before him. How many times this week do you think you've uttered little untruths? How many times? Ask yourself, five, 10, maybe 20 or 30, things that were mostly true but just partially off, maybe enhanced your story just a little bit. Weep over those things. Think right now, when did you last exaggerate? Think specifically, who was the last person you exaggerated to? What did you exaggerate about? Repent of that. 
Who have you flattered recently? What did you flatter them about? Be broken at that thought. When did you last gossip or slander somebody? Or perhaps give ear to a gossiping or slandering word? Repent of that and make haste to go confess to the person that you slandered against and to go rebuke the person that was gossiping with you if necessary. Who within the past week have you spoken truth harshly to? Who specifically have you spoken truth harshly to? Weep in your heart before God right now. Seek his forgiveness and plan to seek theirs. And who in your mind or heart are you currently harboring evil suspicions against? Who are you thinking ill of without perhaps having good justification for doing so? Repent of your sin before God. Apart from Christ, the truth about you is that you are a liar. The truth about you is that your destiny is the lake of fire. I want you to see that. I want you to believe that. And by God's grace, I want you to behold the hope of Christ afresh. That you see the lies that you yourself have committed, perhaps even this very week. You see that before you right now and recognize the just desert that you receive from God for those sins. How can a liar like you and me be saved from the flames of hell? It is because the truth The truth with the capital T was punished for us instead. That Jesus, truth incarnate, the essence of truth embodied in a man, he was falsely accused and he was punished so that false witnesses like you and like me could go free. So that all of our guilt and all of our shame for every single lie you've ever told in your life could be placed upon him and on his shoulders and he could be crushed for that and he could be destroyed for that so that you could go free. Matthew 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole councils were seeking false testimony against Jesus. that they might put him to death. I'm sorry. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. That last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They misinterpreted his words they perverted God's justice and they broke the very essence of what God commanded in Exodus 20:16 when he said you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor they bore false witness against God himself and as abominable as their sin was and as our sin is God sovereignly presided over this great injustice towards Christ and he orchestrated it so that the most grievous false witness and the most grievous lies ever told against God himself 
would be used to punish Christ for the sins of those very liars like you and me. That when Pilate stared the essence of truth in the face and he handed him over to be crucified, God was using that to punish his perfect son in the place of liars, the place of you and me. That truth incarnate God in the flesh. Jesus never spoke an untrue word in his life. No falsehood came from his lips. There was nothing false or deceitful about him. He deserved only the favor of God. He deserved only his love and eternal life. He did not have to suffer or die for himself. But he willingly paid that penalty for you and for me. He took the punishment upon himself that we deserved. That the full equivalent of the lake of fire that all liars will be thrown into according to Revelation 21 verse 8. Jesus took the full equivalent of that on the cross. And that God counts his perfect truthfulness towards you and towards me. That in Christ you've never spoken anything false. That all of those lies and all of those sins are completely erased. And that the favor that Christ deserved, you receive standing in him. The eternal life that Jesus deserved, you receive standing in him. And not only does he cleanse your record of all wrongdoing, but in his resurrection he makes you a new person. He unites you to himself so that you can have a new heart, so that you can be truthful like he is truthful, not like our old father, the devil. Only the truth, truth with a capital T, can save liars. Not by works, but by confessing our sin, turning from it and trusting alone in him, the essence of truth, trusting in the truth with all your heart. In Christ, you have the power to be a truthful person. You can receive a truthful character, a new self with a new heart that loves the truth and that hates falsehood. Colossians 3, verses nine through 10, Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, after the image of the God of truth himself. And that is what sanctification is, is it not? It is becoming more of that new self now. Do you want to be truthful? Do you want to be a truthful person? You must become a new creature in Christ. How can we become more of these people? Jesus said in John 17, 17, you've heard it already, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Be washed in the word. Know the truth. Know the truth with a capital T, the person that is truth. And the more you know him, your fierce love for the truth will grow and your hatred for all falsehood will grow. And as you are in him, you will speak nothing but the truth to people. You will truly strive to never lie again. Discipline yourself to that end. That is the end that he promises for you and for all those who are in him. Your destiny does not have to be the lake of fire. He promises that there will be a time when there will be no more falsehood in the world. That Jesus, the truth, came to undo the work of the great liar, the devil. Zephaniah 3, verses 12 through 13. 
Hear the words of the prophecy. But I will leave in your midst of people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. There will come a time soon when we shall never lie again. Hear the ninth commandment from Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Since God is truth, his children must be truthful. By God's grace, may you see the utter sinfulness of lying and see the power to be truthful in Christ. Pursue truth with all your heart. Psalm 34, verses 12 through 13. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Don't you want that? Don't you desire life and love many days? Don't you want to see good? Then seek nothing but the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that we are all liars. That we are like those false witnesses who accused your son and put him to death. And that in that very instance, you were punishing your son with the same punishment that we as false witnesses deserved. That you can save us by pouring out your wrath on him instead. Please, Lord, cause us to grasp the true abomination and detestableness of lying lips. Cause us to see you as the God of truth that you are, as so perfectly glorious and good and wonderful, and to hate that we are so contrary and opposite to you every single time we utter falsehood. Please make us people of the truth. Make us worthy to be called your children and being truthful like you are. Cause us, Father, to never lie again, to by your grace put on the new self that we've received in Christ that loves the truth and that hates falsehood. Cause us to seek you every day through your word, which is truth, and to be transformed the more we know you. And by your grace, Father, to reflect you as people that are truthful the way you want us to be. Thank you for your ninth commandment. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace through Christ in saving us and making it possible for us to be truthful people. We ask that you would glorify yourself in making us a truthful church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.